Welcome to the Full Mutuality Podcast. I'm Gail. I'm Nate. And on today's episode, we're going to be having a conversation about the Asian American experience in 2021. Yeah, uh, it would have to be given that 2022 just started. (laughs) I don't really have a whole lot of experience in 2022 to talk about it. Yeah, so I had a bunch of lighthearted questions, but since it's just the two of us and we're not interviewing anyone, I'll get right into our topic. But maybe a good question to start us off would be, why did you finally agree to do this, Nate? Um, I don't know. So uh, first, I guess we have a podcast now, so <laughs> <laughs> that that's kind of what changed. Um, the other thing, too, was I was listening to another podcast. Um, it seems to always come around to podcasts, doesn't it? Um, mm-hmm. So I was listening to this podcast um, called Dear Asian Americans. Um, it's hosted by... Jerry Wan, I think. And he made a comment at the end of one episode, and I can't remember exactly which episode it was, but he had made a comment about how um, we need to share our stories. You know, nobody can take away your personal stories. You know, we can get into debates and discussions about um, ideas, philosophies, political policies. um, But when it comes to your individual story and your experience, no one can take that away from you. Um, and he encouraged his audience to to share what their stories were in whatever uh, form, whether it was in some kind of art or podcast or music or, or whatever. And um, that kind of, I guess, served as a, a catalyst for me to to start thinking through my own experience as as unformed as my thoughts are and um as broken as my thoughts kind of are, they're sort of all over the place and I don't really know how to express my experience. I feel like where I am in this chapter of my life and everything that's kind of happened over the last couple of years um, serves as a great opportunity to talk about it, to share what has been going on, how I've been perceiving the, the landscape of the Asian American experience um, in these last couple of years. So I'm really excited that you're willing to do this because I do remember presenting this to you in the past. And I, you just mentioned, you know, as unformed as your thoughts are like in, on this topic, you can talk very well and eloquently on many topics without a lot of prep. There's a lot of topics you're very comfortable jumping into that may be social justice oriented. But I know this one is much more personal to you. And I know a lot of our conversations in the background have been a lot more unfiltered and have been a lot more raw. And I understand that this topic is probably more difficult than that way to get into. And I, I remember listening, you made me listen to that Dear Asian American podcast. And I just thought that was so inspiring, that quote about whatever your story is to like that, it, realizing it's valuable and that you should share. So I'm pumped and mm-hmm. I'm excited that you're willing to go there and that we're having this conversation. I know it's probably a lot more personal to you than a lot of stuff that we've had conversations about. So mm-hmm. thank you yeah. for being willing to share your story. Yeah. So how did growing up around white people influence the way you saw your Asian background? Oh, well, so diving right into <laughs> it, huh? That's what I said. You wanted to go with the hard hitting <laughs> stuff, the meat from the get go. Yeah, um, I would say like so in talking about um, my experience growing up, I think I would start with um, the the fact that I, I didn't want to be Asian. Um, I, I didn't have um, much to draw on as far as um, representation in mass media, you know, my growing up, I was, you know, big nerd. I loved superheroes and whatnot. And my, my favorite superhero growing up was Superman. And I think part of it was his relatability to me, um, being an immigrant and, 
and me being a child of immigrants and Superman being kind of the, the immigrant. You saw um, yourself as Superman. Yeah, there was sort of this, <laughs> <laughs> no, not exactly, but there's a relatability to that. Um, you know, he didn't belong. He didn't belong. And I thought that um, I, I love any, any Superman story that highlights that sense of un belonging that the character has so you know smallville did a good job of that to a degree you know aside from all the teen angst that a that a cw show has but i think for me the the thing about superman though is that he's he's white passing um and anytime superman is portrayed he's played by uh, a white person and so it's hard to see yourself in in mass media as a kid and I wanted to, you know, I dressed up as Superman for Halloween when I was little, you know, I wanted to be like that. Such but, a cute picture. <laughs> I have pictures. But I want, uh, I, that's not, you're, nobody's going to see those. Oh, show notes or something. Mm-hmm. Got to nope. figure something out. Nope. I'm, I'm the producer, so I get to, I get maybe, to control Maybe we'll that. make a Patreon one day and we'll throw it into oh, our God. Patreon rewards. <laughs> yeah. You want to see cute Nate as Superman as a little kid. It's yeah. Join the Patreon or whatever. <laughs> it's non-existent right now, but. Um, we'll make that the gold tier. (laughs) (laughs) This is really up there. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I would say that the, the challenge was that I, I didn't see myself represented. And so I also didn't, didn't feel like I necessarily belonged anywhere. Um, cause it was hard to imagine myself fitting in somewhere. All of my friends were white. Um, and then as you How know, many as, Asian people went to your school growing up, um, when I was really young, um, I was so like elementary school in general. So elementary school, I, I did live in an area that had a lot of, um, Asian people, but the thing is I went to uh, fundamentalist school and fundamentalism is, uh, by and large, a pretty white environment. And so when I was little, there were a couple of other Asian kids in my class. But as you know, I got into middle school and high school, uh, Asian kids left, I think, you know, Asian parents by and large like to expose their kids to larger, uh, to environments that can provide a fuller, whether it's um, music or the arts or, um, you know, deeper education and fundamentalist schools, Christian, private Christian schools just can't provide those environments. They don't have the funding. They don't have the, uh, the education level, the expertise. They don't have it. So um, they, a lot of, they dropped out. Yeah. A lot of the Asian kids that I grew up with dropped out. Um, I didn't. My family was very committed to our religious um, upbringing. Uh, to our religious environment and uh, we stuck, we stuck around. And well, that brings me to your church. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of Asians in your church or were you guys the only family? No, we were, um, we were one of maybe two or three families total. And that was hard, especially given the fact that I lived in an area with a lot of East Asian and South Asian, uh, with a very large East Asian and South Asian population. And so, church wasn't a once a week thing. If you grow up in fundamentalism, this is like no. where you spend two, three, mm-hmm. four days a week. Yeah. 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 So oh, more than that, I mean, because uh, I went to the school, so I was there um, Monday through Friday for school and then Wednesday night prayer meeting um, or youth group and um, Sunday, basically all day because we had, you know, Sunday school early morning. We had service and we had um, e- morning service and we had evening service. And then I was in the choir, so I was there for other stuff as well. Anyway, um, all that to say. Lots of time around, mostly all white people. Yeah. Yeah. And how... Okay, here's a question. 
what things have white people said to you? Maybe we can go back to elementary, high school, just talking about how white people might have influenced the way you saw your Asian background. Yeah. Was there anything that white people said to you that seemed nice at the time, but was actually harmful to you? Yeah. So, um, you know, when uh, I remember when I was in college, actually, um, I had a friend who said, like, you're not, I, you don't even strike me as like, you know, an Asian friend. I see you as like, one, you know, one of my white friends. Um, wow. or something to that effect, which at the time I, I was like, oh, that means I fit in. Right. That's that, how you received it. That's then. how I, I felt about it back then. But the thing is, um, being half Japanese, half Filipino, I don't, I, I, there's no way for me to hide my, uh, Asian appearance, you know? Um, you're not white passing. So, so yeah, even though my friends might think, oh yeah, you fit in with white people. Um, you talk like us, you walk and dress and act like us. I don't look like them. So that's not an environment that I can actually just enter without feeling like an outsider at some level. So to hear somebody say, you know, I don't see you as, as an Asian person. I see you as like one of us on the surface. It feels great because for my entire life, I have felt like that, that sort of nagging feeling like I don't belong in an environment. But when I really think about that, um, there is a lack of recognition of who I intrinsically am and what my, um, my, my culture, my upbringing, what all of that means to me. And it also ignores the hard truth that I will never truly belong in those spaces. So can you think of any comments you heard that were much more directly negative, um, about your culture Growing up, maybe sitting around lunch, cool. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, (laughs) uh, I mean, some of the some of the stuff that that um, the TV show Fresh Off the Boat uh, kind of accentuates, um, you know, like the the main character goes into school. He brings the, the food that his mom packed for him. You know, he opens up the container and all of his friends at his lunch table are like, oh, that smells. What's wrong? You know, mm-hmm. I didn't have anything that was quite that overt, but I did get some like I brought um, uh, I brought like a, uh, a package of nori in for for snack time when I was in, I think, second grade. Um, and if you're not familiar, nori is um, dried seaweed, those those uh, flat seaweed that you can find it at mostly any Asian, uh, Asian shop. And, um, it's, it's a nice little salty, crunchy snack. And, you know, in nowadays, I'm, I'm sure that's probably less weird to see. Cause I, I notice a lot of people enjoy, you know, eating nori as a snack. But when I was a kid, um, nobody knew what that was. None of my classmates had ever seen nori before. And, you know, when, when you open the package, there's a, there's a bit of a smell. It's not a very pungent one, but there is a little bit of a smell that escapes from the package. And, you know, the kids definitely, uh, were riled up about it at snack time. And we're like, Oh, what is that? Ooh. And I use, Oh, it's seaweed. And the kids are like, Oh, you're eating seaweed. So it became a big distraction. And my teacher, um, told me not to bring those snacks in wow. again because it was a distraction and the class wow. was, you know, acting out and she couldn't get control of the class because everybody was reacting to my snack that's kind of wild thinking that like you're basically being like in terms of not feeling like you belong or that you don't fit or that might make you want to distance yourself from your own culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Your own food being told like mm -hmm. you're a distraction by bringing. Oh yeah. It's hard when you, you know, and, and this is as well. And I I can think of, um, you know, my, one of my, um, one of my friends when I was in elementary school, uh, who was, was my, probably my closest friend, 
um, in like, you know, first, second, third grade, um, was, uh, this Taiwanese kid who would also bring in, um, some, uh, some of the food that his mom prepared for, you know, lunch or whatever. And it was a similar kind of experience for him, uh, as well, uh, I'm sure. And, you know, I think of, uh, again, going back to the, to the TV show, fresh off the boat, I think of, um, how the, the character Jessica wants to, you know, really preserve her, um, Chinese heritage and culture for her kids, but her kids are wrestling with the fact that, especially, um, her oldest son wrestling with the fact that he really wants to fit in, in his school. He has a persona that he wants to put out there. Um, but she's trying to translate to her kids like, no, your, your Chinese heritage is, is good and it's healthy and please hold on to it. Be proud yeah. of it. And it yeah. must be so weird, too, because like looking back and I like Fresh Off the Boat for so many reasons. One of them is that it sort of um, takes place in the 80s or 90s, like when yeah. we were growing up. Yeah, so yeah. it has the vibe of like going back in time yeah. when you're watching it. Yep. But I mean, one of the other things that it makes me think of when it comes to Asian food, you brought it up. Now people eat Asian food. White people are much more like white people will just talk to you about the sushi they made or they think mm -hmm. Asian food is so cool now, which is a big sort of a change from, you know, how probably what you experienced as a kid at, yeah. in bringing in Asian food back then. How does that feel like on the other end now that it's like, Ooh, it's so cool and it's so trendy and it's, yeah, there's a little bit of that appropriation feeling to some degree. I mean, some of it is, is exciting to see. Um, but other times there's also, and I, and I saw somebody post about this somewhere and this is, it's a long time ago, so I don't really remember it clearly, but what, what I think, is a little bit on the frustrating side is when you see certain cuisines or certain dishes that are being, you know, recipes that are being put up there and there's no mention of kind of the, the heart and soul behind that, that dish. You know, um, I can't think of the exact example off the top of my head right now, but I, I do recall seeing a recipe and thinking, wait, this is a, uh, you know, like a Vietnamese recipe. And, Oh, I think it was, um, like a uh, YouTube channel might've been like Bon Appetit. I think this was some of the controversy surrounding Bon Appetit. And uh, they had these different dishes that were uh, from particular cultures and the, the chefs that they had who were making the dishes weren't acknowledging the cultures that they were coming from and were making the dishes and talking about um, the excitement of using these ingredients and so on and so forth. And it's it's I think it's jarring for Asian Americans um, to have had those experiences with their food. I think Korean people uh, in particular, because kimchi is such a pungent smell. And and I remember a story that I, I read somewhere of um, a girl whose mom, I think the, the landlord had told her to stop making that food yeah, because yeah, yeah. neighbors were complaining in, in the building and then to see that it's now something trendy that people, you know, white people are going to restaurants and wow. ordering it and are excited about it. Meanwhile, they're being asked by their landlords to not make it in their homes. You know, it's, it's hard. It's difficult because these are things that we were made fun of or told not to do for so long. And then to see them become trendy now with no acknowledgement of what has happened of how we were treated because of, of our food. And not even an acknowledgement of which cultural food this is or, or who the chefs right. behind it, or even that it's an Asian yeah. dish sort of like, yeah, that. Yeah. It. And it's even, I mean, I think of, uh, of how, uh, Chinese people are perceived and Chinese restaurants are perceived 
you know, with, oh, they're probably, you know, cooking cats or dogs. I've in heard the restaurants, that growing right? up. I definitely remember hearing yeah. that a lot mm-hmm. about Chinese restaurants. Yeah. They don't know what the ingredients are. Therefore, like they must whole be suspicion around. Yeah. Yeah. It being negative and dirty. And yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's a stereotype that has not left. Um, I saw recently there's a, a page I follow on on Facebook that does these little, you know, cartoon memes or whatnot. And one that they that they posted that was um, a little bit jarring. Um, it was like this cartoon, um, like a, a two or three panel cartoon. And there was like an alien, you know, coming to Earth, landing on Earth. And uh, this Chinese man makes first contact with the alien and then the next frame has him eating the alien out of a bowl of chopsticks because wow. he's squid-like looking. And I'm like, really? Wow. This is still like this is still happening. We're we're still having these sorts of stereotypes being being perpetuated. And I feel like people are unaware of even the fact that they're doing it mm-hmm. and what messaging is behind and what that's continuing to express. Right. I mean, and also that's one of the that was one of the myths behind how COVID started. Like, you know, people were making comments like, oh, you know, these Chinese people and the and the animals that they're eating, that's caught up to them now. And now we have this global pandemic, you know. Mm. Obviously, that's not that not something that became pervasive. But I remember I heard comments. Yeah, I remember early on in the pandemic comments like that going around. So, okay, all hard hitting questions to start off. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Here's one: What is unique? Maybe before I say that, um, you're just preface this. Your dad was not born in the U.S. He was born in Japan, born and raised there. Yeah. Before he moved here when he was a young adult. Mm-hmm. So what is unique to being Asian American or can you describe what might make you feel stuck in between two very different cultures? Because you were born here. Yeah, um, I think w- one of the things that I that I'm like often reflecting on is the fact that uh, being Japanese American, there is a Japanese American story, a very deep and painful Japanese American story that I don't have a connection to, even though I am Japanese American who was born here. I don't have a connection to that because my dad immigrated here um, following World War II. But I know that there is this, this history of Japanese Americans during World War II that I, I don't know how to process that. Because there's an affinity that I have with the Japanese American community being Japanese American, but I don't. It's not directly part of your story. It's not part of my story. I don't have that in my in my history. I don't have that in my heritage. So you're speaking specifically of Japanese Americans being put in internment camps. Yeah. World War Two. And they did that in Canada as well. Yeah. North America. That's how they handled Mm -hmm. their Japanese population. Right. Right. And, and so, so to, to know that that story and that history exists, to know that, um, the history of Japanese Americans who had been here for generations who they, I mean, they put up signs saying I am American. Um, that didn't matter. It didn't matter. Their, their status, their, the length of time that they spent here, none of that mattered. They were put into concentration camps. So it's a, it's a history that I think I, I, I don't really know what to do with. I, I don't know how to um, approach that. But much like Asian American history, by and large, there's a lot that the, none of us have really processed. You know, um, the history of Chinese slavery in, in the U.S. to build the, the Transcontinental Railroad. 
it's interesting to know that there is a shared history between Chinese Americans and black Americans when it comes to chattel slavery. Of course, I don't, I don't want to uh, minimize the experience of, of black Americans because that's something entirely quantifiably different from what Chinese Americans experienced. But the, the similarity is that they were chosen and placed into slavery because of their race to do certain things, you know, whether it was black Americans working the plantations, Chinese Americans working the railroad. Um, there is that, that similar harrowing history, but I think we as Asian Americans haven't really figured out what to do with any of that. Um, and I think there's been, I don't know, there have been concert conversations that I've heard. Um, and I'm not even really sure how to, how to think through any of that as well, being that I'm not Chinese American. So We'll get into yeah. some questions and, mm. and and yeah, try and dig into some of that. Yeah, um, I want to ask, what do you wish white people knew about engaging in conversation with your Japanese heritage? Oh, um, well, something that I've come to recently is that, and and as part of my own responsibility, is to also acknowledge the fact that I'm not just half Japanese; I'm half mm. Filipino. Um, We've had some good conversations about this together. Yeah. And I think what's want to elaborate on that. Yeah. What's important to me is, and yeah, there, are, there are all sorts of things. So kind of setting aside, answering your question for a minute, there are mm-hmm. a lot, there's a lot that I have to kind of uh, wrestle with internally. Right. The, I, uh, as, um, as somebody who has a Japanese name, um, I don't have a Filipino name. So I have an American name and I have a Japanese name. And so I recognize that my Japanese identity is a little bit easier to um, latch onto. It's easier for me to say I'm Japanese American because when you hear my name, you hear, oh, that makes sense as Japanese. Nate and a cow. Right. So there's that part of it, which I, I guess from, from the outside looking in, it's understandable. But there's also the part of it that I, that I want to acknowledge, that there is a hierarchy, hierarchy in Asia that all has also kind of translated to the West um, in that there's the more prestigious quote-unquote asian countries that are often thought of as the more accepted asians in uh, in the west so you have your uh, chinese japanese and koreans that are often when they when we move around um, in western society we are the stereotypical asians we are the ones who are often thought of as asians uh we are the ones that people um, will very easily and readily go to those restaurants and not think about it much at all. Um, but there are others as well. And even in Asia, they're, they're also kind of quote unquote, second class. You have your, um, Malaysians, your, um, Indonesians, uh, Filipinos among them. And then are treated that way. mm -hmm, Yeah. Um, have often been at the brunt, ever been at the receiving end of the other empires, right? Uh, Japan had an empire that uh, that owned a good chunk of Asia for a long time. China had an empire for a very long time that overtook almost the entirety of Asia. Korea, similar story. You you have the and then, of course, their their empires were invading each other and oppressing each other as well. Um, But you have the southeastern Asian countries that often kind of get perceived, especially in Western society get perceived as sort of second class. Right. And the, you know, you think of how they came here, um, particularly contrasting Japanese and say Vietnamese, you know, um, how the Japanese 
immigrated here versus how the Vietnamese immigrated here, particularly the last sort of set of Im major immigration, right? Um, Japanese businessmen coming here in order to take advantage of uh, the Western economy versus the Vietnamese coming here to escape a war. So it's so, so coming to terms with um, you're also Filipino. Yeah. And, and not necessarily coming to terms, but acknowledging that. I think the the racism even within uh, Asian American or Western, you know, Asians in in Western countries, there there does seem to be a little bit of that, and I think some of it comes from uh, where we all came from historically, and some of it is also kind of perpetuated by supremacist attitudes here in the West because we adopt what we get from white people as white people are the drivers and controllers of, of our Western society. And they have put us into a hierarchy of what's at the top and what's at the bottom. So that's, that's a hard one to kind of wrestle with as well. Right. So the question of uh, what you wish white people knew about engaging yeah. conversations so, about your heritage, your yeah. Japanese heritage or your Filipino mm -hmm. heritage. But I, I find they, they like to, Latch on to your well, and that's so that's why I brought that into the conversation was because um, what makes me me is a number of different things. And it's not just that I'm of Japanese descent, um, which it feels like tokenizing, too, when I, you know, I meet <laughs> I meet a white person and within five minutes of meeting them, they're asking me what I think of Death Note. They're asking me, you know, what you know, what's your favorite sushi restaurant? Why are you asking for sushi restaurant recommendations from me? <laughs> you know, it's Japanese. It, it, so it's it, the first thing that they're sort of noticing before. And like, yeah, like I, I, I don't know. Does it do, could it be some some like validation you need me to validate your love of particular anime <laughs> like i don't i don't know how to how to how to approach how i to think white people are sometimes so excited about ja japanese culture i've noticed it in particular uh how much there's like almost a fetish fetishizing of it and i've seen how white people react to you sometimes knowing you're japanese and how excited they get first thing about your culture and it's flattering but at the same time like you said tokenizing kind of weird almost as a as a way to to get to know you or to jump into a conversation when they don't know you. It is weird. You know, there are things that I would love to get through before. Like you wouldn't mind into. having those conversations, but maybe not right off the bat. Yeah. Would that be accurate? Uh, of course. And I think, I think because sometimes when you want to get to know a person, get to know them at an individual level. And sure, I do enjoy anime, but I'm not like, I'm not an anime aficionado, you know, like I, and, and yes, I love Japanese food and it's a part of my culture and my heritage, but I love a good burger too. Ask me what my favorite pizza joint. I will, I will gladly have a conversation about pizza and bagels. Right. Being that you're <laughs> from the New York area, yeah. um, New York city area, you know, someone asking you about pizza and bagels will definitely get you excited as a start off conversation. <laughs> exactly. I'll get into an argument with you about Taylor ham versus pork roll. I'll this do that. This is a stuff. New Jersey thing yeah. for anyone who doesn't know what he's going on about. Any New Jersey person will have a lot of opinions yeah. on this. Oh, absolutely. And I didn't know this was a thing until I met him. <laughs> okay. So we talked uh, a little bit about, um, uh, you know, the so, different. Oh, anyway, sorry. before, before going into any, any, any of that, some things that I, that I would love to, to kind of express in general when getting to know anyone, regardless of their, uh, of their racial or ethnic background is get to know them as an individual 
uh, don't go straight to the thing that's most like visible, visible about them that might not be the thing that they are most they're they're closest to or feel they want to be identified as. And and yes, I am proud of my heritage, but it's it's fraught with all sorts of other baggage that is difficult for me to to wrestle with and get into. And so when when somebody asks me about uh anime, yes, I enjoy anime, but I'm 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 not well versed and it can be a little bit weird being Japanese American and then feeling like I need to know what they're talking about and then feeling like I've let down let them down somehow because I don't have the knowledge that they're looking for or expect uh, or am expected to uh, to know, you know, and then suddenly I'm not the the Japanese American that they were wanting to get to know. And then the other side of that, too, is I I think as somebody are you Japanese enough, yeah, are, like, yeah, am I am I Asian enough? I don't speak Japanese, um, although we did walk into a Japanese restaurant and you know the things you're supposed to say. And I remember once. They got into a whole conversation with you. Yeah. So I, all I, all I did was, was greet somebody happy new year. And, you know, I was, I was impressed that I didn't understand what he, what he wanted to talk about next. Um, I, I think, and then when it comes to, you know, my Filipino background, I think part of it is that a, I've never been to the Philippines. B, all of my Filipino relatives are here. Whereas um, your Japanese family is over in Japan and you go yeah. visit them regularly. Yeah. And, and Sure. But I, you know, I do, I could go visit relatives in, in the Philippines, I suppose. I guess the difference is that I don't know them. Um, Your Lola's here. Yeah. Everybody, everybody who I'm close to all, like all, all of my aunts and uncles, my grandmother, my grandfather, when he was alive, they were all here. And they also kind of our, our gatherings were not, our family gatherings were not stereotypically Filipino family gatherings. They were just sort of family gatherings. You know, um, we didn't do stereotypically Filipino things. We didn't always eat Filipino food. Um, we did from time to time, but it, to me just felt like, you know, this was family getting together. We spoke primarily English at, um, at our family gatherings. I mean, it wasn't uncommon to hear Tagalog spoken, but it wasn't the, the, the dominant language of our family. Even my, even my Lola speaks English mostly. So, I know you know a little bit of Tagalog. If they're yeah, speaking slow enough, you catch on to something, but you can't speak it. No, I can't speak it. Um, but, but you catch I, enough sentences. I, I know I know enough and I can understand enough when my mom is talking about me to <laughs> others. And, and I know the... You picked the, up certain words. I know the topic of conversation. <laughs> yeah. That's great. So... Um, so I can, I can call her out on it. Like, uh, I know you're talking about me and I, I don't like where this conversation is going, <laughs> but yeah. So like the, to me, I think probably part of the difficulty in, in being able to exude that, that side of my identity is that it's, you feel it's, a bit of an outsider. It's no, it's kind of tied into American for me. Right. It's sort of like, this is just what we've done as a family. This is just the Blanco family, you know? So it, it doesn't, to me, feel like there's any cultural affinity other than, you know, this is just my, my family getting together and my family doing our thing. All right. So this sort of actually follows with what you were just talking about um, when you're talking about, you know, Japanese, Filipino, uh, the different sides uh, of the Asian inside of you, the different Asian communities that you're a part of. And so my question would be, how are Asians all in this together? Yeah. Um, so I think part of it is that we can't escape the fact that we all look alike. <laughs> um, 
there's a, uh, a popular story about, um, Vincent Chin, the Chinese guy who was, you know, on his bachelor party, um, at a bar and a couple of, it was, it was around the time, I think it was in the seventies or eighties, um, right around the time that the Japanese auto industry was really taking off in the West, you know, like people were buying Toyotas in droves. You, you first started hearing about these auto manufacturers, Toyota, Nissan, Honda, Mitsubishi, like these, these names that, uh, that are ubiquitous now, but they were first starting to make a splash back then. And people Mazda. were, yeah, Mazda is another one. People were buying them up, which put a big dent in the American auto industry, you know, Ford, General Motors, Chevrolet, they were all struggling because of the influx of Japanese cars. And so there were these, um, these auto workers who had recently gotten laid off and they were at this bar and, uh, this guy, Vincent Chin was having his, I think he was having his bachelor party and I'm not as familiar with the story as I really think I should be, but I'll just tell it as I remember it. And, you know, if anybody wants to comment on, on the, on the episode and correct me or, you know, just share the story as it, as it should or be. Go look it up and learn yeah, about it. Or go look it up and learn about it. I mean, I know his name, Vincent Chin. These, these two guys who had lost their job at, I think it was Ford or GM, they took out their, their anger on, on Vincent Chin and, and said, you know, we're, we've lost our jobs because of you. And they beat him up and they killed him. Vincent Chin's not Japanese. He has nothing to do with the Japanese auto industry as far as I was aware, but. To white people. Yeah. He represented Asian people. Exactly. And I think as ethnic minorities, especially those of us who have, you know, similar appearances, you know, who phenotypically present very similarly. I think it's, it's important for us to kind of in, in, in times of struggle to not distance ourselves from each other, because that's not going to do any good. When we're walking down the street, nobody's going to look at me and and think, Oh, he's not Chinese. Let me not call him a, you know, Chinese slur. Our, Our struggle is each other's struggle. I think it's, um, it's important for us to, um, to work together. Um, I, I just think that we as uh, an Asian American community, and I think the, the events of the last couple of years have really sort of given us um, more of a, uh, uh, of a, of a shared story as Asian Americans. So while, you know, previously I would look at, let's say my Korean American friends and I would say, yeah, you know, we, we share a, a similar cultural heritage to a degree, you know, some of our foods share some similar an- ancestry and, and we, you know, we present similarly, but, um, that's about it as far as, you know, our, our shared story. But I think the last couple of years have really, um, sort of brought to the surface how closely related we all are, how tight knit we need to be as a community. We're all fighting for the same things. Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Filipino Americans. We're all fighting for the same things. I mean, part, part of why I wanted to talk about this was because of what had been happening throughout 2020 and 2021. We really hit ahead in 2021 and I don't see it slowing down at all with the the wave of violence uh, against Asian Americans, it becomes too much. Eventually, it, it starts to hit. You know, you just start to walk through life constantly in fear, in places that you're not supposed to be afraid. Right? Um, like Chinatown, it's supposed to be safe for Asian people. 
Mm. Um, but just a block or two blocks away from Chinatown, a guy gets stabbed. Um, a Chinese guy gets stabbed, you know, and I think, you know, I, I think of my own, my own brother who was called a chink and got into a fight. I think of people who have made comments to me about bringing the virus here. Um, that seems to have been a catalyst. I'm, I'm maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to have when the Asian hatred the, and people have commented, oh, there's always been Asian hatred. And that's true. But there's been a recent wave of hatred towards the Asian community mm-hmm. that seems very linked up with the fact that uh, the virus originated in China. And some of the comments that you've gotten have been linked directly with that. Do you think this wave of Asian hatred ties up with that specifically or is being used as the catalyst or excuse to like stir up yeah, hatred? I think I think. I, I think that at least from my own experience, um, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced the kind of um, vitriolic sort of comments or statements aimed directly at my racial identity at any point in the past. I had been made fun of, you know, playground kind of, you know, jokes about what I look like. Oh, Nate, do you see in sixteen by nine widescreen? Wow. But like the straight up sort of, you know, hurling of Asian slurs, the kind of like accusations, you know, I remember standing in line uh, at a, at a store waiting outside a a store back when the the pandemic kind of first started. And we had these, you know, lineups because of capacity limits at stores. And there was one guy in line behind me made a comment like, Oh, you know, how does it feel knowing your people brought this thing over here? Like, what, how do I, you know, how do I respond to that, that kind of thing? What do I, what do I say? What do I do? You know, trying to, to have being in, in, in chat groups with my, my family, with my mom, my dad, my, my brother having to talk about, you know, being, being careful when taking a walk, you know, in the, don't take walk, right. Don't go for a while. You know, like my, my grandma, you know, the, the attacks on Asian women in particular, elderly Asian women was terrifying. It, it's, it's frightening. And I think that's especially difficult for Asians uh, because of the way that, that our elderly are sort of heralded in our cultures. So it's, it's like, it's like a particular, it's a particular kind of wound when we see our elderly, you know, being stabbed, being thrown up against walls, um, robbed, beaten. It, it stings at, at another level, you know, it's like, it's the heart of our culture. Mm. So between those things and then, um, the murders in Atlanta last year, you know, br- bringing that even, even more to the surface. And do you think that was a, a turning point for you on uh, when Asian hatred took on a different note in terms of how you were feeling? No, um, because that had, had started before to me seeing that it was, it was like, yep. Yeah, here we are. Of of course we, we got to this point. I, I think, I think for me where it hit you, where it hit me, um, was when there was the news of, of that guy in, I guess he was just on the subway. Manhattan. Yeah. In Manhattan. your home. He was stabbed on the subway or getting off the subway platform. I think reading that headline, uh, they, they, you know, the comment uh, or the headline was like, you know, 36 year old Asian man. Uh, stabbed on on the subway platform or something like that and (laughs) i was i think it it hits so close to home because that that is me um 
Mm-hmm. And that's my brother. That's, I, um, I, I think it was this debilitating fear that at any moment something could happen. Um, so, and then that reminder that you don't, you don't really belong here, mm. you know, um, must feel like such a betrayal. It's hard. Um, because you know, this is the, like, this is, I don't have a home. This is my home. The, the struggle of being Asian American, particularly, uh, an Asian American who wasn't taught any of my, my family's languages is that I, I can't go to the country where I would fit in. I can't live there. I can't exist in that space the way that I was, that I way that I would exist at home. Right. Um, but home isn't safe for me. It's not safe for people who look like me. So it's, it's hard. It's, it's scary. You know, you want to feel safe at home. It's hard when you can't. Yeah. Anyway. <sighs> I just want to take the pause that we should get to this because it's a lot. And yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of you for, for wanting to go here today. Mm -hmm. I've watched you. I've held you when you've had your moments of just not being okay. And I know it's, it's gone on for a long time. Do you, or did you find it hard to discuss or speak about Asian hatred? Was it harder than speaking up about other groups that were being targeted for you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, when, uh, in, in the aftermath of the, of the George Floyd murder, it's easier to get loud because when you have your friends that you're talking to who are expressing to you what it feels like, I didn't have anything to really latch onto particularly specifically at the time. Um, I don't know what the black American experience is like, but I can connect it to my experience as an Asian American and I can get out there and I can use my voice. And that's easy for me. But you're when, the type that will speak up. I mean, I know you, you you're always wearing your hockey stick is surrounded by the LGBTQ rainbow tape and yeah. you're very vocal on other groups that are marginalized and oppressed when it came to this topic. I think part of it too, is that as a, um, a cisgender heterosexual man, I, I, I'm in, I'm in a privileged position overall. So there is a little bit of imposter syndrome that I feel when, when talking about marginalization, I, I'm not, huh? I'm, I'm in a very privileged and as, as an Asian American, I also stand in a very privileged position as a man specifically. Yeah. A as male Asian. Asian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, especially as an East Asian, uh, because Southeast Asians and South Asians don't, don't, uh, don't have that luxury that I do. Um, so I think, I think it's also more difficult. Uh, that was sort of a layer that I was fighting as well of, well, you have the right to speak. Yeah, are you an imposter? Am I, am I an imposter? Am I, should I be talking? Should that be me? And then there's the other side of it too, of like, this is my trauma, right? Like, I don't know that I have the energy to get into it. I don't know that I have right. the energy to talk about what's so deeply personal to me. Right. I look and, and I applaud, especially after what had happened, I applaud black people for being able to do that. Cause I had so much trouble. I had, it was so difficult for me to, to talk about it, about my people's trauma. So when I see black people just getting up there and talking about their people's trauma, I'm in awe. Cause I remember how difficult it was for me to do that. How exhausting. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. 
I guess what I would say is <laughs> when you see people who are, um, who are suffering and nobody's speaking up for them or they're, they're speaking up for themselves, you know, lift up their voices and, and say something, even if you like, I, I and one of the things that, that I know uh, often white people are afraid of is, you know, not saying the right thing or saying yeah, the wrong right. thing. I'm, I'm thinking too, telling people, you know, when they introduce themselves to you to be, to not fetishize your Japanese yeah. side. I'm like, Oh, a bunch of my white friends now are going to be scared. They said the wrong thing <laughs> to you and, and needs loving and forgiving. And just to let my friends know that. Um, and you might say the wrong thing. And that's, that yeah. is part of life, yeah. right? Like white people get very afraid that we, 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 I want to say white people, like I'm outside of it. We are afraid of making mistakes. And that's part of that white pseudo supremacy yeah. attitude that we're like, Oh, the, the whole white savior, all of the, those attitudes that we've been given. It's like, you know, call a person racist and it's the most crazy thing, the biggest yeah. insult you can give where it's like, this is just about your actions and behaviors mm-hmm. and learning how to do better. Yeah. I mean, like Ibram Kendi said in his book, racist is, is a, is it like a name tag that you put on and take off at different points based on the actions that you are taking in that particular moment? Because in, in this moment I could be anti-racist, but five minutes from now I can be racist. And it's, it's never, it's a, it's a movable identity. It's never something that like you're slapped with and oh my God, like that's it. You're racist and you're labeled that for life. Yeah. Side tangent, but maybe helpful for white people in terms of understanding this, but like, you know, let's, let's take sexism as a side topic and, you know, women can be sexist. I guess we can, we can adopt patriarchal attitudes and we might have to root those out of ourselves too. Like it's not an indictment on everyone who is a certain, you know, it's not like only men this applies to. Mm-hmm. You know, racism, sexism, all these things are attitudes in society that we all absorb Mm -hmm. and we all have work to do on, like you were talking about attitudes towards other Asian communities, Mm -hmm. right? Within the Asian community. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I know like there's no time to really get into it, but, but the way that Asian American communities have historically looked at black American communities um, or, or, or black Americans at, at large, that's a conversation that also needs to be had that Asian Americans who are aware of. Uh, of how our people have spoken about and to black people. That's a conversation we all need to have in and amongst ourselves. But in any case, that's interesting. Cause the next question I actually had written down is, are there challenges unique to Asian culture that make conversations around racism difficult in a unique way? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm no expert on this and I don't have like answers um, really, you know, like well articulated or prepared. But, you know, I, I know of uh, of how difficult it can be even for myself to address um, how like perceptions in my family of black people and what black people are, are trying to fight for, you know, at large in as a community, I suppose. And they're all the same things that we're all trying to fight for. I think. You know, the thing is, uh, there's perhaps a fear because, you know, I think one of the things that Asian Americans do notice is how black people are treated by the police. And we don't want to be those people. We don't want to be treated like that. Mm -hmm. So the answer then isn't necessarily to address what is wrong with our law enforcement system in the country, but rather to fit in with white people, because there's also this sense of perpetual foreignness that we have in our communities that the the power brokers in our country can kick us out at any moment. It's happened. I mean, you know, you think of uh, Chinese exclusion act of 1865, you know, and for a hundred years, Chinese and people who look Chinese were not allowed to immigrate to the country. So 
it, it's not like this is a far-fetched fear that well, we have. Well, then World War II wasn't that like my, my grandfather fought in that war. And, mm-hmm. you know, the concentration camps for Japanese happened. Yeah, so absolutely. like people who had been there and their parents had grown up in the U.S. and right. been born there were still. So there, there is certainly that fear uh, of being placed in those kinds of positions once again. And I think that probably is one of the one of the unspoken or unconscious motivators for us not speaking up. But without us talking about it, without us addressing things, nothing will change. Well, speaking of talking about it, would you be willing to talk about how the model model minority myth plays into any of this? And mm-hmm. you have a not your model minority hoodie that you got into trouble yeah. with one Sunday when we were leaving the house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We want to talk about the model minority. Yeah. Um, so the, the model minority myth, and I know like we're, we're running up against the clock here, but um, just to, to give a brief overview, the model minority myth is this idea that, you know, Asians are the good minority in the U S and that has been, that's a myth that was created by, you know, white supremacist ideals and is perpetuated by white supremacist ideals. And it basically, what it does is it holds Asians up against black Americans, Latino, Hispanic Americans, and says, look at what they're doing and how they're uh, acting within society. Be like them. If they can do it, so can you. But it ignores the history of black oppression in the in the US it ignores the history of generations of slavery and how any time that black people reach any modicum of success as community as you know as a as a group they're shut down and crushed. You know? exactly you think of Tulsa for instance and then it also ignores the history of Asian immigration into the into the US and you think of and picking the richest right. Asians to come over right there's provisions for east asian immigration you know, the best, the brightest, the, the, the people who were able to get tickets to, to immigrate here. So that's, I, th- I think one of the things that, that I, I do think is important for us to have conversations on, and maybe we could have that conversation another time. What is Asian erasure? How does that play out? Um, hmm. Um, that there's a, there's a lot. Uh, so Asian erasure, can can play out in in uh, in mass media pop culture, um, for instance, where there's there's very little um, Asian representation, and so there's this sense that we're being erased from pop culture. But you know, and then there's also the the way that we're represented in pop culture. You know, there's uh, the way that um, that Asians um, are shown when it comes to you know the the male lead. It's very rare with some changes now currently and a few exceptions scattered throughout history, but Asians by and large are often like the plucky sidekick, the comic relief, the nerd, the Kung Fu artist. Yes. Who, who is, um, untouchable in any sort of, you know, sexual way, right? He's, he, the, he's not really treated as, as a, a sort of sexual lead, like the white male is in films and, and television. And so then Asian women, right. And then there's the exotification of Asian women that they are some of the most objectified in pop culture and and media. So that doesn't really speak to, I I think where, where I would see Asian erasure in that in, in media. And I know many would disagree because it's, it's a very, it's a very big concept, but where I kind of would see it is in how our nuance um, as people and as individuals and as, as uh, cultures is 
erased from from popular media. Um, so that's one sense. But there's the other sense in education, right? We don't talk about Japanese the Japanese internment camps. We don't talk about Chinese slavery. These are these are not things that are taught in U.S. history in most classrooms, and yet they're very very crucial parts of our history. I mean, I think the Japanese concentration camps are given a, a brief mention in if you're talking about World War II at large, and and so many. I mean, so many people just are unaware, right? Um, that, of, that even happened, yeah. And so, you know, Asian erasure takes place in that in that environment, in the classroom environment as well. We don't know our own history. Um, and then Asian erasure, you know, in, in the halls of power, whether the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the executive branch, it's very rare to see Asian Americans in those places of power. We had talked in the past about, um, Andrew Yang and, and his, you know, run for the presidency and then his, you know, uh, run mayoral run in New York city. You know, I wasn't a fan of his policies, um, particularly during his, uh, uh, mayoral candidacy. I think I didn't pay enough attention to him during the, the, presidential primaries uh i think it was follow, obviously following elizabeth warren more closely but um i think you know we we see somebody and we latch on to them you know and it's easy to latch on to them and i think a lot of us are trying to get a better sense of the nuance that needs to be the nuance of conversation that needs to be happening um when it comes to candidates but it's difficult to do that when we get excited about the fact that this is the first time we're seeing ourselves being represented on a national stage in that way so I guess sort of on topic of Asian erasure, but uh, maybe in the more, on the other side of things, who are you following in the Asian community? Are there certain social media sites, platforms that are helping you in terms of just making you feel more connected, bringing yeah. awareness to you? Um, I think you'd mentioned a podcast. Yeah, I mean, Dear Asian Americans is one podcast. Uh, so Jerry Wan, who um, who hosts that podcast, is worth following. Um, I particularly like Liz Kleinrock. Uh, you can find her on Instagram and Twitter. Next shark is, um, uh, an account that I, that I follow to keep track of, um, Asian American news. So as far as books and authors go, Dear White Women, uh, which is written by Misasha Suzuki Graham and, um, Sarah Blanchard. And the, I think the sort of the, the tome that I would probably latch onto as, as a, as a, precursor book is a book called the making of Asian America by Erica Lee. And so those are kind of, I guess, starting points for me as far as keeping, keeping abreast of what's uh, what's going on in, happening. in Asian America. Yeah. And then I think um, one, um, one organization to, to look into is uh, the Korematsu foundation. Um, so if you're unfamiliar, Fred Korematsu was somebody who was interned, um, at a Japanese concentration camp and his daughter, uh, started a foundation in his name. And that is one of, one of the, um, the organizations that I think is one of the better advocacy groups, um, that are fighting for civil rights in the U S and they have, you know, of course, in a, a Facebook, Twitter, you can, you can learn about what they're, the work that they're doing and, and support them as well. Uh, one of the points of, or the reasons why I wanted to do this interview with you, I think a lot of white people will learn a lot as they listen. I also hope that Asians who listen will also be encouraged by what you have to share by sharing your own story. And I guess as a question related, um, how have you engaged in self-care considering this wave of violence, considering what 2021 has brought? Um, what types of support or groups have fed your soul in terms of being in touch with your grief? Uh, mm. How have you looked after yourself? Um there's a, a 
a Facebook group that I'm a part of that. I mean, there's a lot of venting that goes on in there. So sometimes you kind of got to walk away because it just becomes a lot, but it's fun to, to share memes (laughs) with, you know, Asian related. You got to laugh. Yeah. And I don't know, gaming, (laughs) I play video games sometimes just to, to decompress. Um, and then of course, you know, going to, going to therapy, which I think is self-care for just about anyone and everything. Right. Um, and that's sort of what began my latest foray into searching for a new therapist. Um, I, had, I hadn't been in therapy for a while. And um, with everything that had hit with regards to Asian Americans during the pandemic, I felt you needed <laughs> maybe I need to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a bad experience with my with the first therapist that I So sometimes you need to with. shop around. Yeah. You go find a therapist. You don't have to settle on the first one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So I ended up finding a therapist that I, that I feel very comfortable with now. Um, though I haven't really spoken and gone into this experience, um, as far as my Asian American identity, um, goes, uh, this was a topic that I have yet to, to dive into. But this was a topic that kind of encouraged you to go back mm-hmm. to therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Who has, um, reached out to you and what has that meant to you? And maybe that would be a, a good question in terms of helping white people know what's helpful mm. out there. What? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, um, honestly, when you don't know what to say, sitting there silently is not the answer. Mm. Um, asking questions is, is often the better response, you know, especially when you see something massive, uh, like, like the killings in Atlanta and to ask questions of your, of your friends who are, who, who share an identity with, victims, right? Does that look as simple as how are you doing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just, Hey, I saw this take place in the news and I wanted to check on you. Hmm. Um, Powerful. Even though yeah. it's such a simple. I, and and even just admitting, I don't really know what to say. Right. But I, I feel like you need somebody to, to talk to. So I'm here, I'm listening. I'm willing to just lend an ear, you know, you had some friends do that for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's more powerful than trying to come up with, with something. With a big know. monologue. Right. Because you don't need to. You really don't. Don't center yourself. Take some time to allow yeah. the other person to share where they're at. Yeah. What advice do you have for other Asians who are stressed out right now? Hmm. Um, stick together. <laughs> Tell your stories to each other. And if you are a victim, get on to stopaapihate.org and tell them your story. Listen to each other's stories. Um, I, I know I talked a lot about the idea of solidarity and how we as Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Korean Americans, et cetera, we all need to come together um, because we do have some pretty deep seated divisions among us. Our experiences are not the same, but I think it's also worth say, talking about how our experiences are different and sharing our individual stories uh, with each other as well, um, because I think that also helps to, to build some solidarity. Speaking of individual stories, I had a fun, fun question to end things off with. Okay. What did your grandpa first teach you to say in Japanese? <laughs> um, when I was really, when I, I guess I was like five, six years old and we were in Japan, my, uh, my, my grandfather has this big, you know, old booming voice. Um, uh, but, but he was a smoker. So it was raspy. <laughs> he in what little English he knew, he, he mm-hmm. sat me on his knee and he said, no, sir, English say grandpapa. Japanese say ojichan. You say 
Ojichan. I would be like, you know, a little, you know, a little kid. Ojichan. You know. I love that story so much. Yeah. Just makes me happy the first time you shared it with me. I was like, oh, yeah. I gotta make you tell that story. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know my Oji Chan very uh very well. You know, he he passed away when I was, I think, maybe ten or eleven years old, and I'd only I'd only met him like maybe three times in my life, two or three times in my life. But that's the the memory of him that's burned in my in my mind. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Thank yeah. you so much, by the way, for, for being willing to go here. And I know this was initiated by you, not me this time around. Last time when I asked, you were just, it was too raw. There was way too much. It was right in the middle of everything. Yeah. I saved my questions in a notepad and, and you came to me on your own. And we're like, actually really want to talk about this. And I'm so glad that you have been willing to go there. And I know yeah. it's draining. Thank you so much. I love you. You're awesome. Thanks. Um, and we hope that you guys have uh, have enjoyed listening to, to us dive into this and that you share it around. Um, and then it motivates you to share your old stories as well. Yeah, thank you for listening. Before we finish up this episode, I want to invite you to share your story with us. Gail's cousin, Glenn, who's Japanese-Canadian, took some time to sit down with Gail and recount some of his own story after listening to this episode. If you'd like to share your own story, please visit our website, fullmutuality.com, and either leave us a quick voice message by clicking the pink microphone in the bottom right corner of the page, or send us an email by clicking the contact tab at the top of the page. Each of us has our own unique story to share. Here's Glenn's. Glenn, thank you so much. Thank you, cousin, for joining me, for being willing to do this conversation with me. I know... Uh, you were saying to me how, you know, this wasn't fresh, fresh in your mind because you had listened to it a few weeks ago, Nate's story, and that yours was quite different from him. And at the end, we were talking about the importance of sharing our stories. And I'm really thankful that you're willing to share a bit of yours as my Japanese cousin. And I've known you as long as I've been alive, because I think you and my cousin Kathy got married when I was fairly yep. young. So, yep. yeah, we've been married 41 years now. Wow. Yeah, that's older than me. So, yes. <laughs> so. so as, I, uh, as I was saying, we, um, my grandfather came here in 1898 and, uh, and he did the photo bride thing and went back to get my grandmother in 1906. And so uh, our family's been in, in Canada for a long time. My, um, and that's my mother's side of the family. And uh, there were race riots in Vancouver in 1907 that my grandfather participated in. And he was there trying That's to awesome. protect the Japantown of Vancouver. And uh, I, he never really talked about that. I only found that out checking out the Japanese-Canadian history at the, at the museum in, in Vancouver. Wow. So there's a, and there's a lot of things that families don't talk about and uh, and that was one of the things so they my family moved all over vancouver they lived all over vancouver my grandfather uh started to buy property when he was very young one of the first things he did was he just saved money and buy another apartment or another house and rent that out to somebody else so he, he would be one of the people that rented out places to new japanese people coming over from japan and uh, so he, uh, so the family's been here a long time. My mom was born in Vancouver in 1919, and uh, my dad was born in uh, in Hiroshima in 1914. So, and he came over when he was 16. So he came over in 1930. So, wow, right in the middle of, of the depression of all of that. Right, the, the 1930 would have been the depression. It would have been just awful uh, being here. 
So the family was interred during the interned during the Second World War, and both of your parents, yeah. your grandparents, yeah, yeah, well, the whole family, everybody. Do you know how old your parents were um, when they were my there? My mom would have been uh, like twenty, I guess. No, yeah, yeah, twenty because it's nineteen. You weren't born. You weren't no, born no, no, yet. No. And then, uh, so my dad came over here when he was sixteen, so that he would have been uh, another. He would have been about 27 when he was interned. So he had already been working on the railroads in the interior of BC, so he was very familiar with the interior of BC. But I have no idea if my family suffered any discrimination back then, but I imagine they must have. Yeah. But yet your mom and dad were actually both interned intern yeah, in they were in interned, Canada. yeah. And they were, uh, and then in the... And Brian Mulrooney gave them twenty-one thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, five hundred or something like that, um, when he uh, when he apologized. Oh. So that was the apology, and you know my my family was fairly well off. Um, my my uh, grandmother, my mom's mom, owned a general store, and uh, she, she had a fleet of three taxis and uh, and two fishing boats that they owned that they would rent out. So, so you know, and and then all that stuff was they didn't, lost during the war. They didn't get back. They never got back their property. No, no. no. the stories of that are very, you know, uh, when you go through the paperwork and you realize what you had, and then it just disappeared, and uh, things were disappearing under in a secure government lockup, and uh, you know they, they would be put in the lockup, and then. Uh, when you go never back, they out. never came out, or they came out and got sold to somebody else, or whatever. And so wow, there's a lot of. Uh, Were your parents open to talking about their experience no, there, no. or was it no? Psychologically, I've read that it's like being raped. So you can, you know, you can now uh, you can think of what that's like, and then that's why my parents didn't want to talk about it because they f- weren't sure if they weren't at fault. You know, and uh, even though my mom, like in her heart, knew that she they weren't at fault, but it's just something that happened during the war. But we also thought that, uh, you know, it's it's wartime, so bad things happen to almost everybody, um, and this is just, you know, a case that you're uh, the alien race, and so they didn't know to trust you. And but the issue also partially was that. It was dangerous to be living in Vancouver because there were people who would, you know, firebomb your store or firebomb your house or something just to get rid of you. Just because you were Asian. Just because you're in, Japanese. In Vancouver. And they and the thing is that they didn't know Chinese and Japanese, right, apart? Right. So like when Nate was sharing too, it was like that, you know, that whole the Asian community, like he'll have Chinese slurs directed at him, but he's not Chinese. To most white people, there's no difference. That's in right. You know, if they're angry about the coronavirus, they're not going to be like, oh, you're Japanese, you're not Chinese. They're not going to bother making the that's distinction. It. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and now the yeah. only thing that's kind of cool is that uh, we have a Marvel superhero that's uh, Asian descent. <laughs> we really enjoyed watching that movie together, <laughs> Nate, and I thought it was very, very well done. So, uh, so did you, do you find it, um, do you find it like a bit of a stark contrast knowing, you know, your own that you haven't really gone through anything like your parents experience and what they went through is horrific considering that Canada did that. And then you've had this experience growing up where you have not had any, you know, anything like that happen. Have you found that like, 
has it been hard to process through that or to make sense of well, that? Well, it took me a long time to realize how blessed I was. You know that uh, when I was uh, when I was a rotten little kid, and uh, I always thought that oh, you know, my parents are picking on me, and they're and my parents used to tell me that I should always behave because people will remember it's the yellow guy that's doing something wrong, or that has. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure to put. Like your white kids don't have to worry about well, <laughs> about worrying about yeah, that. Yeah, because. <laughs> Representing the whole entire race of well, people, and, you know. And, but the thing is, it's true because you would people would remember me more because I was Japanese or because you know I stand out. And did you also find yourself in communities where you were the only Asian kid in your school, or was there a lot of Fortunately, yeah. Around? Fortunately, Rosemount High, for example, had lots of. Uh, yeah, you went to my yeah, high school. That's yeah. true. So there, there we were a lot of Asian kids, uh, uh, but it. Oddly enough, or maybe coincidentally, uh, some of my best friends coming out of high school were um, uh, Wei Chin, uh, the Chinese guys, and the you know the guys who sort of had a little bit of the same kind of cultural background or understanding. Um, you had to stick together. Yeah, we sort of you know, we sort of did, but but I at high school, I um, all of my friends they just treated me like one of the gang. They didn't treat me any differently. Uh, didn't treat me special, didn't treat me any worse, so it's just one of the guys. Just fit right in with, no, with, your, so. with your peers. I, I think one of the things is that I'm a, I'm a pushy Asian, too, so I, I, <laughs> I'm hard to push around, and when I want something, I'll go get it, and I'll be, you know, I'll be aggressive about it. And so, you know, when, from that point of view, I think it's a little easier to take... When I act like white people, you know. Oh, <laughs> when you when you push yourself around and don't let others uh, take from you necessarily, yeah. and try That's to it. think, yeah. So you know, and and my friends today are they're still uh, some of my best friends are guys that I went to high school with, you know, and and wow. we are we are all we all treat each other equally. And we're a little United Nations group of people, and we all, and there's a dozen of us that go to dinner about uh, every two months or so, except during the pandemic. And, right. And uh, so we have, uh, you know, and lifelong friends kind of thing. So it's good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you for, for being willing to share some of your own story. It is quite different than Nate's, just even with your parents' history and your own background. It's And everyone has their own different story to tell. And I just, because you're my cousin, and, you know, I didn't even actually know about Canadian internment until I think your daughter Allison was posting up right. about, about your family. And I was shocked. Like, these are not things I was taught about in school. And I was like, I can't believe this happened to my cousin's family. And it was it was something that, you know, I was trying to wrap my head around a country that's so inclusive doing this to part of their population. And uh, the older I get and the more, you know, different topics keep coming up, like what's going on with the natives and what they're uncovering, I'm realizing, yeah, that's a lot bigger than we're willing to admit sometimes. Yeah, I think, I think the whole issue, though, around um, the indigenous people and the Japanese uh, internment and stuff like that was was the fact of uh, there's a certain group of white people who felt in peril. The B.C. government was the government that was pushing to get to have the Japanese interned. And they were worried, but, and they used that as an excuse. And there were some racists in that government. 
And uh, they use that as an excuse to intern the Japanese people. And so that, to me, is an indication of lack of respect, right? Fear, maybe, but it's a lack of respect. And the same thing happened to the indigenous people. There was a thought, uh, there was certainly a lack of respect, but there was a thought that they had to, in order to be modern, they had to be like the white people. Right. Forgetting that the indigenous people had hundreds and thousands of years of history themselves and culture and yeah. and and they they wanted to wipe that all out. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of that in our history that that I think it's important to remember in order to not repeat history and to be aware of of how we need to be different than that. We need to be aware of how that can creep in. I think every person has to try to do that. In the future, because like I, every now and then I'll I'll say something or do something and I'll say, oh, that was not very sensitive. It wasn't very inclusive. It was, you know, because I'm a 68 year old guy. And and so I have all these years of um, being um, not misogynistic, but, you know, maybe not treating women as well as they should have been treated. So. So you're learning. You're in process as we all are and learning and growing. Like, I'm always learning. Right. And, and, right. And, Hopefully we all are yeah, there and, <laughs> continuously learning. And you have to be like that yeah. or else it's just not going to work. Well, I will say that I appreciate that about you, that you're somebody who learns and who grows and who wants to improve in those things. In all the years that I've known you as my cousin, I have never, never experienced the misogyny from you. <laughs> I have never even seen the pushy side of you that you talk about, but I'll believe you on, on the younger version and what you did to get by. But I've always seen you as one of my more inclusive, welcoming, thoughtful cousins. Mm -hmm who will stand up for, for things when it's hard. I'll see you even on social media putting up things that are thoughtful mm. uh, to provoke other people, and I've always appreciated that about you. And so I'm really thankful that you were willing to come share some of your own story. Thank you. Um, to add on to the conversation of being Asian American, because everyone has a different yep. story and has yep. had different experiences. Thank you, Glenn. My pleasure. Take care. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it around. You can also spread the word through rating and reviewing us on the website or iTunes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app so you can be sure to get every new episode delivered straight to your device. If you don't have a favorite app yet, you can visit our website, fullmutuality.com, to find a list of all the apps we're available on. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.